What does the American Revolution have to do with the Imago Day? What does the American Revolution have to do with the Imago Day? I know that most of y'all have history as your favorite subject, and theology hopefully is your even more favorite subject. I'm wondering, is there any relation here? American Revolution, Imago Day, made the made in the image of God. What aspect of God's image in man and woman was being acted out in the rebellion of the colonies against that tyrant, King George? Sorry if there's any British people in the room this morning. We love you, but we did win. <laughs> what do the American patriots of the original 13 colonies have in common with all people in all nations and in all times? What's the link here? You're like, John, I have no idea. Just get to the point. <laughs> okay. It's probably something you wouldn't have guessed. There were undoubtedly many motivators at play leading our forefathers and foremothers to declare independence from England, but perhaps... The primary motivator leading our forefathers and foremothers to declare independence and break away from England was their innate desire to rule themselves. Was our innate desire to be kings and queens. The patriots wanted freedom from tyranny and freedom for self-rule. They, like we, wanted to rule themselves. Listen to this interview of Captain Levi Preston. Captain Preston was a soldier who fought in one of the first battles of the Revolution in Concord in 1775, not far from where John Belmore grew up. Concord, okay. <laughs> in East Texas, it's Concord. <laughs> listen to this listen to this guy he's interviewed Captain Preston he's interviewed like while he's 90 years old way after the war listen to this interview he's asked Captain Preston why did you go to the Concord fight the 19th of April 1775 the old man bowed beneath the weight of years raised himself upright and turning to me said why did I go yes I replied my histories tell me that you men of the revolution took up arms against intolerable oppressions. What were they, oppressions? I didn't feel them. What, were you not oppressed by the Stamp Act? Captain Preston says, I never saw one of those stamps. I am certain I never paid a penny for one of them. Well, then what about the tea tax? Tea tax? I never drank a drop of the stuff. The boys threw it all overboard. Then, the interviewer says, I suppose you've been reading Harrington or Sidney or Locke about the eternal principles of liberty. Never heard of them. <laughs> we read only the Bible, the Catechism, Watts, Psalms and Hymns, and the Almanac. Well then, Captain Preston, what was the matter? And what did you mean in going to the fight? Listen to what Captain Preston says. Young man, what we meant in going for those redcoats was this. We had always governed ourselves, 
and we always meant to. They didn't think we should. End quote. This captain, Levi Preston, summarized the main idea behind the revolution. The patriots did not want to live under the rule of Britain. They wanted to rule themselves. They desired to be their own kings. And what I'm going to try to argue this morning is that this desire that they had that led us as a nation to where we are today, this desire for self-rule still pulses in people all over the planet. And it's not the result of a good political or a good education in political philosophy. But rather, this desire to rule ourselves is rooted in something fundamental about how God created us. We might say it's rooted in our constitution, pun intended. We were constituted by God to rule this world. All of us, men, women of every color. Now I'm getting this from our next verse in Genesis chapter 1. We're still trucking through Genesis 1. We're coming to Genesis 1, 26. Yes, we're only going to study one verse this morning. And I'll hope to tell you why later on at the end of the sermon. But this verse where we learn that we're created in the image of God is going to show us, and I'm going to try to show it to you, that God made us to rule. That God made us to be kings. This verse 26, and the ones that immediately follow it, which we'll study in a couple of weeks, 27 through 31, because we're going to pause and do Psalm 8 next week. But this verse, 126, says that we were made to rule the world, also saying that we're to rule the creation as those who have a relationship with the Creator. So it's, it's two things that are happening here in verse 26. We're made to rule the earth, in relationship with the creator of the earth. Now what's happening at the end of Genesis 1 is Moses is slowing the pace way down. He's zooming in on the most beautiful aspect of the diadem of God's creation, namely man and woman. The creation of humans at the end of day 6 is the climax of the six days of creation. How do we know that? Well, we know that because we're called the image of God, but also we can know that um, literarily, because in day six, Moses uses literally twice as many words to describe what happens on that day. So Moses is intentionally slowing us down and zooming us in on this creation, this creative act of man and woman. He even comes back, this event on day six, the end of day six, is so important that Moses is going to come back to it in chapter 2, slow us down even more, and give us what we might call a 3D picture of what God does here in verses 26 through 31. Here's the question I want us to drive at this morning. What are we? What are you? You're like, I'm a man, I'm a woman. Great, we're on, we're on the right track. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be a man, to be a woman? I'm not talking gender specifics. That's going to be later in a couple of weeks. What does it mean to be human is what I'm driving at. 
And as the sermon title suggests, the answer to this question is we are meant and created to be royal children. Royal children. We are meant to rule the world out of a personal relationship with God. So that's where we're going this morning. This is what verse 26 means when it says we are created in the image and likeness of God. Let me read the verse and then we'll get into some of the specifics. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. We're actually only going to study the first part of verse 26. So we're slowing the pace down rather dramatically this morning. We'll come to the end of 26 in a couple of weeks. Before we look specifically at this idea of ruling and relating, ruling for God and relating to God, let's just point out some obvious things from this text. The first part of this text. And God said, excuse me, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So first, understand that the word man in Hebrew is the word Adam, 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 good job Jonathan, it's often used as the personal name for the first man, Adam, but in the first five chapters of Genesis, it's actually used in three different ways, it's used to refer to the, the guy, Adam, it's used to refer, refer more generically to the first man, which we know is Adam, but it's also used in a more blanket way to mean humankind or mankind, it's a collective singular. So what Moses is saying, or what God is saying here in verse 26, let us make man, really could be translated, let us make mankind. Now I'm not going to get into the debate of whether God created a historical Adam as one singular, or he made a whole bunch of humans at the same time. I think he just made Adam first to begin with. That's a whole other debate. If you're interested in those kind of fun debates, please see Jared Pulse after the service. But man, what I, what I want to... I just have to stop on this because especially in a society where, where gender stuff is just spiraling out of control, man here doesn't mean dudes. It means people. It's a collective singular. Mankind. Let us make mankind in our image is what it means. Now, it also says, or it clearly says we're made in the image and likeness of God. Let me Again, just point out a few more obvious things, and we'll get into the main thing. Image here, when it says we're made in the image of God, we just have to start at the very beginning and declare that this means that God is ultimate and not us. We're made in the image of God. We aren't God. We reflect something else. Our being and identity doesn't or originate with ourselves. So image of God tells us who we are not. We are not gods. We are the image of God, but we are not gods. But this also tells us that though we may not be gods, we aren't nothing. We're not nothing, to use better grammar. We're not nothing. We're not made in the image of nature, the image of galaxies, the image of mountains, the image of even our parents. We're not made in our own, own image. We're made in the image of God. So this means that though the Milky Way and the Atlantic Ocean and the Rocky Mountains and Beethoven's Fifth and the Amazon Rainforest 
and your beautiful children and grandchildren are wonderful, none of them, I shouldn't have said children, sorry, that was a mistake, because <laughs> children are indeed made in the image of God, um, got carried away. None of these created things that aren't humans are God's image. No, no beautiful, majestic, grandiose part of creation has this said about it. Only we, men and women, are the image of God. We aren't gods, but we do have an exclusiveness to our identity. We aren't deity, but we have dignity. Now also, notice that image of God is something we are. It's not something we possess. It doesn't say that God gave us the image of God. It says, let us make man in our image. Man isn't given the image of God. Man is created in the image of God. All that we are bears the image of God. Many theologians and scholars and, and others will try to separate and try to discern, well, what part of you, what part of us bears the image of God? Is it the mental? Is it the spiritual? Is it the moral? Is it the physical? I think what the Bible clearly says is all of it. <laughs> you, in a total, as a totality, are the image bearers of God. The Bible do, does indeed say that we are spirit and body. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. We're embodied spirits. So, this means that when my grandmother died on Friday afternoon, her body now, right now, is, is actually decaying in a morgue in Weatherford, Texas. But her spirit lives with Jesus right now. Because she's not just the body. There's something more fundamental to her. She, she had a body for her sojourn on earth. And she, her spirit will be reunited with a resurrection body one day. But right now she continues to exist in spirit with the Lord. We are dualistic in a sense. Monistic dualism is a better way to describe that. We're one and two at the same time. Embodied spirits. So... When it says we're made in the image of God, this means that our whole being, not some distillation of us, is a transcription of the eternal God onto a temporal being. All of you, friends, let me say this, every part of you, every part of you is image of God. Image of God. The image of God is something that you are not something you possess. Now, let's come back around. Well, I should say this, just to be clear. Some have argued that um, sin, um, sin took away the image. And that's just not true. Genesis 9, 6 plainly says that whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So even after sin comes into the world, man still bears the image of God. James 3 says the same thing. It talks about cursing people with your tongue. We bless the, the Lord and we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So the Bible is plain about this fact. As long as you are human, you bear the image of God. As long as you're human... Sin or otherwise, which obviously we're all in sin, 
So pre-fall, after fall, wherever you are, where we know where we are, you are the image of God. It's not removed by sin. It is marred by sin. It is distorted by sin. But it is not removed. The image of God is something we are, not something we possess. Boy, this has so many implications. I need to restrain myself. I am super passionate about this subject. You guys are so, you're so much more special. That's not even a proper way to say that. You're so beautiful because of what you are. Before you do anything, before you make any money or impress people who know you, you're image bearers of God. You are. Not like you later when you grow up and get a life. <laughs> right now, you are the image of God. So what does it mean when it says image and then likeness? We're made in the image of God and after the likeness of God. What does this mean? Well, as I said, let me summarize again. These phrases mean that God made us to rule his world and relate to him personally. To rule and relate. To rule and to relate. God made us kings and queens and sons and daughters. Now, I know what you're thinking, you theologians out there. You're like, well, wait a second. Only those who are Christians are sons and daughters. Yes. Amen. That's definitely what the New Testament teaches. But Genesis 1 also teaches that everyone is made to relate to God in a familial kind of way. Whether they end up having that relationship restored through Christ is another question. But we all are made with those tools. More on that in a few minutes. So, we are made to rule and relate. Kings and queens, sons and daughters. There's a horizontal aspect to the image and a vertical aspect. The horizontal is implied with the language of image. Image, this term focuses on our relationship to the world. We rule over the world. Likeness refers vertically to our relationship with God. Let's take those one at a time. To be made in God's image first means that we're a mirror of God's rule on the earth. We reflect and represent His authority over the world. Ancient kings, at the time this was written, would set up statues of themselves throughout their land to show that it was their domain. Interestingly, they would use this exact language to describe themselves. They were the images of God over a particular region or particular people. They'd place an emblem of themselves in regions they didn't personally live in to indicate that their dominion was over that region, even if they didn't live in that region. So in the same way, God has established his image bearers in his land, which, oh, by the way, is the entire earth. As one theologian puts it, quote, man is set in the midst of creation as God's statue. This means that man, and again, man here, when I'm saying man, I mean mankind, man has a royal status in the world. This royal status, though, doesn't mean that we rule 
autonomously. We're copies of the king, not the king. We serve at the leisure of the king. We don't rule as the ultimate king. We're God's deputies, his governors, his acting representatives in the world. The world is God's domain. His image bearers are his stewards exerting his rule, not as despotic dictators, but as responsible caretakers. God put us in nature to rule over nature. The following verses, which we'll study in a couple of weeks, make this even more explicit. Notice the end of, or the next part of verse 26. Let them have dominion. And 28, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it and have dominion over it. What, who has dominion? What kind of person has dominion? It wasn't a trick question. Kings. Kings. Royal rulers. But the text doesn't say that you're the image because you rule. It says you rule because you are the image. The order is very important. You are fundamentally, inherently, friends, you are fundamentally royalty. And out of that meant to rule the world. God has delegated some of his authority to us to care for his creation. God has put us in a horizontal relationship with the earth. We are responsible to take care of his property. Again, the order is important, and Psalm 8 makes this clear. Psalm 8 says that God crowned man with glory and honor, and then it says he put all things under their feet. We're, cr we're crowned with glory we're declared royal, and then we're given the right and the responsibility to rule. Friends, we are kings and queens. And I want to drive this home because I think this goes against the way that we may sometimes think God sees us. Do you ever just feel like God is basically not okay with you? Like he's just waiting for you to get your act together and grow up. Like, could you just get out of bed for crying out loud and have a quiet time? I mean, seriously. Like, like God just waiting on you to be something. And then he'll look at you. He'll notice you. He'll see you. He'll love you. He'll pour his life into you. You feel that? That God is, God's disposition is basically not, not happy with you. Obviously, sin has disrupted the relationship. But even in our rebellion, God doesn't just smite us in the face of the earth because we bear his image. I love how Ray Ortland describes this. Me and Damien were talking about this early down. He's got a wonderful book. I pray many of you would pick it up. It's brand new. It's called The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity, Building a World of Nobility. Listen to what Ortland says. He says, Britain has its royal family with the pomp and ceremony, but you belong to a royal family from beyond all this world. So how crazy is it that you might feel like God is up there rolling his eyes at you, thinking what an idiot you are? 
the God who is actually out there respects you. To him, you're not a pawn, not a loser. In God's eyes, you have royal dignity. Your creation was your coronation. End quote. We don't have the image of God. We are the image of God. No matter how jacked up your life is. Even Adolf Hitler, for crying out loud. As demonically inspired as that man was, he bore the image of God. As do you. Sin has undoubtedly distorted this. But it hasn't removed it. It hasn't removed it. And we all know this, I think, deep down. We all know that there's something more to us than what we feel on a particular bad day. There's something more to us than what our parents said to us or didn't say to us. There's something more to us than the way you feel and the way our culture makes you feel. There's something more. Deep down, we know that we're something different. When we asked as kids, we were asked as kids, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Did y'all ever get that question? I used to love that question. Um, I was so excited because I'd always say, well, it kind of progressed. I'd start with, like, I wanted to be an astronaut. And then I realized I didn't like science, so. And then I wanted to be an NBA basketball player in junior high. That didn't work out. Um, and then after that, I watched a lot of baseball with my papa. I wanted to be a sportscaster. What about you? When you were asked as a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure you, you didn't say, you know what? I want to be a loser. be a nobody. I want to be a leech. I want to be a failure. I can't wait to be a failure one day. Is that what you said? No. No. We said, we all said we wanted to be something big and bold. Why? Why? Because you're made in the image of God. That's why. In our childhood, our God-created nobility, to use Ortland's words, our God-created nobility was already longing to be fulfilled. God, in a sense, God himself put a deep sense of destiny into our lives. And I'm not talking in terms of the health and wealth garbage, that you'll be rich and famous, but this desire that your life means something. That you want to do something great. Not, not just be famous on social media. That's lame and super short-lived. But be something fundamentally beautiful and great. Why? Why? Because God made you in His image. Meaning, you are made to be a king or queen on this earth. To rule His world. God literally designed us to rule the world. Friends, you're not trash. 
you're not trapped. You're like, Don, you have no idea what, what I've done. You have no idea what was done to me. I haven't even told anybody what's been done to me. You have no idea what I feel. You're right. But I know what the Bible says, and what the Bible says is true about you, whether you feel it or not. You're not trapped. You're not some second-hand garment that, that God dropped off at goodwill because he didn't really love you or need you or think you're pretty anymore. You're not that. You're the image of God. You're beautiful. Young ladies, you're beautiful. No matter what the world's standards of beauty are, God says you're beautiful, honorable, and glorious because you're a human. You bear the image of a glorious God. And the same would apply to us men. It's okay, parents, to call your little boys and to tell your little boys and your little girls that they're beautiful. And it has nothing to do, hear me carefully, it has nothing to do with their physical features. It has everything to do with what they are. We're kings and queens put in nature to rule over nature. Now, there's another clue in our text, back to verse 26, that hints that our role is to rule. It's a disputable point, so I'm not going to die on this hill, but I'll fight you on this hill. <laughs> not really, not really, but I'd love to talk to you about it. I'm going to hold this with an open hand, but I want to put it forward for your consideration, especially because for much of my adult life, I thought differently than this until I actually thought about it carefully. Look at the beginning of the verse again, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Let us. He doesn't say that anywhere else on any of the other six days of creation. Why the first person plural? Let us. Who's he talking to? Many have said and assumed that this is a veiled reference to the Trinity, a reference to a conversation, um, a divine dialogue within the Godhead. And it very well may be that. The Bible is a divine and human book. So a reference to the Trinity may have been intended here by the divine author, namely God. But I think it's virtually impossible to argue that this is what the human author, Moses, intended to communicate. His original audience certainly wouldn't have understood this interpretation. They didn't have categories for trinity. That view wouldn't even make sense for another couple thousand years when the New Testament comes around. So any interpretation that steamrolls over the original author and audience is, as one theologian says, quote, highly suspect. There's another way. Actually, there's several other ways. Some are very crazy. Some are less crazy. This is, I think, the most plausible other way to interpret this text. Let us. What does let us mean? That's what we're getting at. What does let us mean? Well, many will say that this means that God is addressing a heavenly court of divine beings. 
We might call them angels, heavenly beings, or gods, little g, gods. God is addressing a heavenly courtroom or assembly. Many religions in the ancient Near East believed that this is how it worked, that there was a supreme God who operated in an assembly of lesser gods. Interestingly, we find this in Psalm 82.1. God presides in the divine assembly. He gives judgment in the midst of the gods. At the beginning of Job, Satan comes to the assembly to talk to God. Gods here, little g, mean angels. These beings are subservient and subordinate to God. We have to be clear about that. They're not equal with God. They're subservient to and subordinate to God. So while the Old Testament acknowledges the existence of these other beings we call angels, it definitely rejects the notion that was prevalent in these other cultures around Israel that these beings shared power or authority with God. They believe firmly, as do we, that only the Lord God has a status worthy of worship. No angels should ever be worshipped because they're not God. What does all this have to do with our phrase, let us make? And how that's connected to our role as rulers? Well, here's the connection. Ancient people around Israel believed that the ruling of the world was a community project. A group effort of the gods. Moses is telling Israel that God announced to the heavenly assembly, let us, plural, that he'll share his rule with who? Them? No, no, no. With humans. With humans. Moses is yet again subverting the bad theology of the cultural, uh, cultural milieu around Israel, teaching Israel that as humans they have a status almost equal to the divine beings, angels, or little g gods. This is exactly what David will say later in Psalm 8.5. You have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings. Moses is telling Israel that God announces to this assembly that, hey, oh, by the way, assembly, I'm going to share my rule with man and woman. Man and woman, not with you. Man and woman. Now, some will say, well, the, they say the big problem with that view is that it means that, that God and angels kind of co-created man. No, it, it doesn't have to imply that. This wasn't the case. There was no co-creation between gods and angels. Only God can create. A good way to illustrate this interpretation would be think of a, a chairman or CEO of a corporation announcing to the board of trustees or the shareholders saying something like, let us make all employees shareholders. One theologian summarizes like this. In verse 26, God has communicated to the divine assembly that his rule in the world will be affected largely through humans, humans, not through gods or angels. This result is completely contrary to the culture of that, of that time. This is yet one more Subtle, but in their case, not so subtle, because they were reading this very carefully, and I hope that we are too. One more subtle, not so subtle way of saying, hey, hey, humans, hey, Israel, hey, men and women, you have a divinely appropriated dignity that is even on par, if not greater than the angels. And you must not think of yourself or me as like the other cultures around you. I'm not sharing my power with, with angels. God says he's sharing his rule with humans. 
God, Israel's God, the God of the Bible, intends to share his rule of the world with us. So let us make, is yet another indication, summarized, yet another indication that God's intent is that humans rule the world with and for God. God made us kings and queens, a little lower than the heavenly beings. And just for some context, if you'll read your Bible, you'll see that when angels show up, people fall on their faces and sometimes want to die. And God said, you know what? I'm not going to share my rule with them. I'm going to create man and woman, and they're going to rule with me over this world I've made, which is incredible. I hope you feel in your bones an increasing sense of dignity on, on who and what you are. This doesn't mean that God made you as some pawn, by the way, some puppet king, some puppet queen to just move around. Jared had an excellent discussion on the um, tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility in our training class this morning. Both are in the Bible. Both are true. So then we come to the other phrase in Genesis 1.26. We are made in the image of God, and then it says, after his likeness. We're made after the likeness of God. What does this mean? Image points us to the horizontal, as, horizontal aspect of how we're made to have a relationship with the world. Likeness points us to the vertical aspect of how we're made to have a relationship with God. Where am I getting this from? Well, turn with me a few chapters over to Genesis 5. We'll start there. I won't spend very long on this. Time is fleeting, and I'm starting to sweat. TMI, John, TMI. Genesis 5, 1, 2, 3. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man, Adam, and they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered, fathered a son in his own likeness, there's that language, his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. So, what's happening over in 126 when it says we're made after the likeness of God? Well, Moses is using language of likeness to point us to familial or relational realities. Listen to how one Old Testament scholar, Stephen Dempster, explains this text, the Genesis 5 text. He says, by juxtaposing the divine creation of Adam in the image of God and the subsequent creation of Seth in the image of Adam, the transmission of the image of God through, his, through this genealogical line is implied, as well as the link between sonship and the image of God. Listen to this. As Seth is a son of Adam, so Adam is a son of God. Language is being stretched here as a literal son of God is certainly not in view, but nevertheless, the writer is using an analogy to make a point. So, back to chapter 5. As Seth is a son of Adam, so also Adam is a son of God. Now, Interestingly, when Luke writes his genealogy of Jesus, Matthew has one, Luke has one, you know how Luke ends his genealogy? Cool, I'll tell you. He ends it like this. I'm not going to read all the names leading up to this, but just read the very end. It says, he's the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. 
he literally calls Adam the son. Little S, guys. Little S, okay? Not big S, Jesus. Not second person of the Trinity. He calls Adam the son of God. Why is he doing that? He's interpreting likeness of God in Genesis to mean that Adam is not only an image bearer of God, but also a son of God. There's a way that Adam relates to God that's personal and relational and familial. This this way of thinking, by the way, wouldn't have been super unusual in Moses' day. In the ancient Near East, a king would be considered the image of God because he had a relationship to the deity. Uh, Usually like a son to a father. It was thought then that a king ruled the world as a son of God, little as son of God. So the idea of a servant king who is also a son wasn't unfamiliar to Moses' original audience. There was one massive difference, however. You probably know where I'm going with this. In the ancient Near East, a king could be considered the image who represents the rule of God on the earth. And he does that because he relates back to that deity as a son to a father. There's a relational thing that ends up in a rulership thing. That was true of kings, but what does Moses say here? What's the difference? It's massive. Moses says that everybody is like that king. Moses says that everybody has the image of God, is the image of God, and the likeness of God. Moses applies these terms to every human ever made. He doesn't restrict the status of kings and sons or queens and daughters to some elite section of society. Verse 27 makes it clear. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Everyone. Everyone. Everyone, not just the king. Everyone rules for God and relates to God. Now obviously, as I said earlier, the New Testament makes it clear that only those who are in Christ are called children of God. That's John 1, 12. But Moses is saying here that all, pa- all people were made to know God in a relational way. That all people were created to enjoy their creator. Fellowship with God isn't for a special class or caste. It isn't for those with degrees or money. It isn't just for those who keep the rules. Everyone on earth, this is, this is the import. Listen carefully. Everyone on earth has the tools to relate to God. Now this is where other aspects of the image come into play. This is why we have a spirituality. What else explains the fact that there are religions in every people group of the earth? False religions, we would be quick to say, but why are they all trying their best to appease some divine sovereign? There's a spirituality. Why do we have consciences? Why do we have a moral intuition? Why do we have reason? Why do we have the ability to think and process and even communicate abstract ideas? Because we were made to relate to God understand him, speak to him, hear from him, know him, love him, enjoy him as a son to a father. 
as a daughter to her father. Everyone on earth is made to know God. Everyone on earth can know God through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit of God. And everyone on earth has a royal status representing God's rule in the world. So whether you mow yards, write papers, sell houses, build websites, raise children, teach classes, design systems, do information technology, build houses or skyscrapers, whatever you do, you do it as a king or a queen designed to rule the world. I had this really awesome thought as I was driving this week, and I was meditating on this, and I saw this, this dude blowing the sidewalk off. And I used to do that for a living. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> Not really. But I looked, you know what? I looked at him differently. He was ruling the earth. Like, do you really believe that? He was having dominion over that sidewalk. He was telling those leaves where to go. He has a kingly function in that moment. And so do you, friend. Like all the mundane junk you have to do is your way of exercising dominion and rule. We're going to get to this more. I'm getting ahead of myself. This is a little bit, this is two weeks from now. But you have a royal right and rule in this world. Even if you think your job is lame. We've all had lame jobs. Amen? No matter what you're doing, if you're a human, you're doing it as a king or queen on this earth. This dignifies work, doesn't it? More on that in a couple weeks. The reason I chose to stop down on this one verse, I had planned to do 26 through 31, but you guys know me. Um, Just got too much to say. So, planned to do more, but I chose to do less because I think that many of us, myself included, um, feel that our lives are futile. We feel a meaninglessness in our lives. Am I alone in this? Like, what the heck am I doing here, and why is this, why is everything so difficult? A world full of death, disease, debt, divorce, despair, depression, dictators, disagreements, and division has a way of swallowing up the hopes and dreams we had as children. Isn't it beautiful to watch children because they don't care about anything? (laughs) as we live and the longer we live futility starts to swallow our hopes so if I asked you now friend if I asked you now what do you want to be one day what do you want to be many of you would probably say man I just just want to get through the stinking day I want to be free of futility free of meaninglessness free of the grind free of all of the drama and the garbage and the trials and the affliction. I just want to be free of futility. I want to know that my life has a point, that this whole thing is going somewhere, and that what I'm doing with the bulk of my hours every day is actually for some good reason. 
want to be free. Last year I read a novel called All the Lights We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr. Highly commend it to you. The main character in the novel is Marie Larice. I'm not saying her name right. She's French. Marie Laurie or Laurie. And she's waiting for her father's return. And as she waits for her father's return, her mind takes her to her favorite spot. She thinks, quote, Oh, to be free, to lie once more in the Jardin d'Apprentis, that's in Paris, with Papa, to feel his hands on hers, to hear, to hear the petals of the tulips tremble in the wind. And then the narrator says, he made her the glowing hot center of his life. He made her feel as if every step she took was important. But Marie wonders, Papa, are you still there? God crowned his creation with man and woman. He made us the glowing hot center of his world. He wants us to know that every step we take is important. We long to fill his hand in ours, but while we wait, we wonder if he's even still there. Is that you this morning? Are you wondering if all this stuff is true? You believe in God, but you wonder if he's actually even noticed your life. You wonder if he takes the time to care, to hold your hand. We long to rule, but we feel so alone. And we feel so afraid. And at this moment is when we need to come back to the truth of all truths, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's at the cross of Christ where we learn that the King of Kings, Jesus, the Son of God, at big S, the Son of God, the ruler, the ruler of the world, the King of Kings, which is cool phrase, by the way, King of Kings. Get it? King, Jesus over kings. He's King of Kings. He, on the cross, died, died for the rulers of the world who can't even rule themselves. He died for the governors of the world that can't even govern their own lives. He died because we can't. And to give us His Spirit so that we could. He died to gather us around His legs and make us His sons and daughters. Not just in this world, but also in the next world. And He proved that all of this will indeed take place when He rose from the dead on the third day. So that everyone who puts their faith in King Jesus and bows their knee humbly to Him will be given a new title, a forever title, son or daughter. A forever title, ruler of this world and the next. 1 Corinthians 6 says that we'll be seated on the throne with Jesus, exercising judgment over the cosmos. Everyone who unites themselves with Jesus gets rulership and sonship forever. I'm a little excited about this. My grandmother died this weekend and nobody knew her name 
Her name was Virginia Geiger. You know how she came to faith? Her and my papa came to faith because their neighbor invited them to church one day. Have you ever invited someone to church? Someone who's lost and going to hell? You could change their entire family. I almost cussed. I'm so excited about this. You could change their whole family's trajectory. Hey, man, come into church on Sundays. Let me take you. I'll take you to lunch afterwards. Nobody knew Virginia Geiger. She had no inheritance on this earth. Her and my papa lived off of Social Security forever. And yet they were always, always the most generous people in my life. When it came time to raise money for a mission trip, if you ever had that awkward experience, <laughs> you have to ask people for money, my dirt poor grandparents would always send the most. Why? Because they loved this gospel. They loved the next world more than this world. And they put their money where their mouth was. And they knew that this world had offered them and afforded them no luxury, no name, no fame. But in the next world, they knew that something beautiful was coming. And so they lived their humble, quiet lives, serving faithfully in their local churches till the, literally almost the day they died. So what do you want to be when you get past this life? What do you want to be when you get past this life? You're so consumed with right now. Just stop. Just stop. What do you want to be when it's your turn to breathe your last? What do you want? What do you want your, your next life to be like? You want to be a ruler seated forever with Christ reigning over the cosmos? A son or daughter with a room in the father's house and a seat at the father's table. The only other alternative is to be consigned to an eternal existence of fear and flames and futility. What do you want your next life to look like? You have been made to rule and made to relate to God. And through Christ and Christ alone, those designs find their destiny. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray you would take your word and use it to help us think and feel more clearly about reality, about our life, our families, our church, our neighborhood, our city, our nation, the world. I pray that you would um, clear away the fog of um, all the stuff that consumes our minds, even right now. Make Jesus precious to us. Show us the glory of the King of Kings. Show us the glory of the ruler of rulers, the Son of God. Show us that in Him is life, and the life is the light of men. 
I pray that you would also guard us from a self, a worldly self-deprecation, an eeyoreness, where we're just always down and always out and always frustrated and always complaining and always anxious and always afraid. And help us to remember, help us to remember that you have made us the image of God after the likeness of God. This is meant to humble us. We are not gods. (laughs) And it's meant to dignify us. So help us to strike that balance in our lives. Help us to teach this to our friends and our family and our children. Make us a people who fear God and who fight for the dignity of every human being on this planet. Help us, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.